All right. By way of reminder, we have two events tomorrow or one event tomorrow? Two events tomorrow. Morning, Delia. And then an evening. Afternoon, Delia. Not evening. Not evening. Not evening. Not evening. You should leave before evening comes. That's right. That's right. So, um, I personally believe that if the community is meeting, a member of the community should do everything in their power to be at that meeting. So I feel compelled to explain. I will not be at either one of those tomorrow. And I think I've got a great reason. And there she is. So if you're on Instagram and you happen to see some cool shots of a real cool girl climbing a mountain with an old man, that's it. <laughs> From behind. She doesn't even know. <laughs> anyway, thank you. Thank Congratulations, you all. Joseph. Thank you. Congratulations, Joseph. Thank you. I'm 34. It is 31. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I'm so excited about this year ahead. I mean, we have no idea what's going to happen. We're in the midst of a blood moon tetrad half of whom are done, and the other half are yet to be. We are watching the next generation lead this community and work on our portion discussions, our chazening, our, where is it? Our, I just did him. Our chazening and our chazenuting and uh, all of that uh, and goodbying and helloing and all that stuff. So I just I just think it's I just think it's good. Today, I don't think there was anybody that was not involved in the Torah service that was that was older than thirty years old or something. That's right. It really is. It's true. It's really really cool. It's amazing. It really is. So I I, I hope that you're excited about what's going to happen. Uh, this year, we're also obviously seeing a move to uh, perhaps uh, tilt our community somewhat towards the Safari Sitter and uh, Moxor. I don't have any problem with that. And uh, and we're also hearing the sounds of joyful children more and more. Amen. Amen. And that is a great sound. And the school sign up list is. Ah! <laughs> Yeah. For those of you watching from afar, that was a dig, and you could just email Morgan at Cordell's. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that uh, we need to share or go over before Joshua leads us? Anything at all? You want the light? Oh, ow, whoa, that's going to leave a bruise. Hey, being old is a good thing. That's it, that's it. All right. Oh, yeah. Thursday night, I do want to encourage you. How many people are coming on Thursday night for Simchat Torah? going to read the Torah out loud. Whoa, all right, all right. Now. If you're doing that, I want to encourage you, it's okay to invite someone else to come and read. 
I was at someone else a while back. That's exactly <laughs> right. And look what happened to you. You want to have And here is the proof. That's <laughs> it. That's it. Yeah, he was here for And a wife. Yeah, here's a wife. I'm sorry. Beard and a wife. That's right. Yes, come, come read the Torah. Get a beard and a wife. So um, I'm excited about that. I've already invited a couple, and I've told them, uh, you know, country people like Christians, told them, bring your favorite Bible. So there it is. Yeah. Bring your own beat. It sometimes does freak people, Christians out a little bit when at the end when we start running around. Torah. We only run around following the Torah if Rick gets up and starts doing his little dance to you. Yeah. We've had that a couple of times. It was pretty cool. Um, I think that's it. Joshua. Okay. The old man rises. We all yeah. Right. <laughs> 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 yes, yes, sir. <laughs> Thank you. Rest those bones, man. In my day, <laughs> when I was a young man, I was a young man. Um, Four score. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we're going to end up doing what we thought before was the shortest Torah portion of the year. But yeah. This one is really short. Um, so if you happen to have like a cool tie-in to the Haftarah, I give you permission to throw that in. Um, but keep in mind, let's see, let's just take a look. Oh, we're actually, we're actually earlier than normal. Wow, look at that. Okay. We actually started on time. We started on time. to come in out of the warm. Okay, exactly. At the AC. So we, What's we, left of it? We've got a good amount of time to discuss here, and we'll, um, we'll dig in. So... Um, if you have a comment, as usual, raise your hand. I'll try to catch you as best I can. Please, someone point out to me if my father-in-law has his hand raised, because I probably will miss it. N not because I want to. Um, but yeah, no, we're going to dig in today. And one of the things we start off with, they have an interesting passage to begin for the Sukkot um, uh, Torah portion. Um, we're gonna, we go way back into Exodus, which is kind of a, well, unexpected. In fact, if you're listening to some of the commentary, uh, not commentary, but the additional prayers that come with the Maksor, there's a lot of conversation about the Exodus, which you're thinking, wait, 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 which holiday are we in again? Like, uh, we already did Pesach, and this one's, but of course, Sukkotis remind us of the, um, he made them to dwell in tabernacles in the wilderness, so there is a lot of emphasis on the wilderness, and of course, how we get there, coming out of Egypt. But what's interesting about the, the, the dwelling in Sukkot in the wilderness is that Judaism has also a somewhat more um, interpretive, I guess, mystical approach to the tabernacle concept. It's more than just like a physical booth that they were building, that they were living in. Um, Judaism a, a, a associates it with the cloud that covered the community as they were traveling through the wilderness. Um, which makes this passage make you know a little bit more sense. Although we, we, for one thing, we do of course have the the listing of the holidays. We get those towards the end of this passage, but the beginning of this passage, um, it's all about God's presence. It's all about like the presence of God going with them, and that's what the cloud represented. It represented the presence of God traveling with them, sheltering him in the the in the in the wings of his glory, and they um, and Moses is basically saying. Hey, if you're not going to go with us, we're going to flash back real quick. You may have, uh, for those of you who've been a while since we've read this, um, that you have the golden calf, things are a mess. Moses goes out, you know, he's going to the, 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 the tabernacle log every single day, the, his tent every single day to go and 
try and ask God to forgive them and all this different stuff. And finally, God tells them, okay, I will send an angel with you, but I can't go with you because you guys, you're going you're gonna to just invite punishment. You're, you're a mess, and if I'm with you, the standard's going to be too high, and I'm just going to have to like, wipe you out eventually. And everybody's just devastated. It's really bad. Um, and that's what this, that's how we start off this passage. Is, is Moses is going? He's going. I'll, I'll, I'm in with you. And Moses is like, Well, if you're not going to be with us, don't let us leave. We want to stay here. Um, and that's really what this whole this whole holiday ultimately is about. It's about the presence of God dwelling with His people, because that's also what we talk about. We get to the Revelation. We get to the very end. That's the end. The end is that God dwells with us all the time. Yes, sir. Joshua, I wonder, you know, especially for um, for some of the noobs and the younger folk with us, like Joshua. Um, Neither noob and really not young anymore. He's no, old. But, but he's going to, I mean, I, I assume one day he's going to be sitting where you're sitting, so who needs to be? Well, apparently that is the lineage we're passing on. If you're named Joshua, you, you, get the, you get the stool. The stool, yeah. So, uh, if you wish you were named Joshua, you could sit here too. Ah. Oh. You do know that before I married your mother-in-law, you wanted a son. She guaranteed Joshua. me my first son would be named Joshua. And actually, the irony is your oldest son-in-law is He's named Joshua. Joshua. Yeah. I changed my mind. God still gave. Right. Joshua. Yeah. Oh. You're prophetic. Oh. <laughs> So I think it's important to, if we could, if we could just review, what in the world is a whole Hamoed, and and what's Hoshana Rabbah, and what happened on that? Since we're not going to get together again until this holiday is uh, for a teaching thing until this day, until this holiday is over. So I think you know when it it has to do with Messiah, it has to do with water, and. Well, I'm sure you know the, the hat on the other side of the room has something to say about Hoshana Rabbah, but maybe you could just you know get somebody to explain real quick what's a Chol Hamoed and what, what do we do? You know, what's the deal here? Um, well, let me obviously just uh, do the quick little recap briefly. We had the Shabbat at the beginning, Yom Tov. We have a Shabbat at the end. That's also a Yom Tov. And they're what's both Yom Shabbats. Tov Yom Tov's a good day. So we've got the um, the holiday of Sukkot is bookended by Shabbats. Then, all of the days in between are called Chol um, which days literally is the days, sorry? Days in between. Days in between, or the, um, yeah, there's also, the Moed refers to the appointed days, so he's got this whole little stretch here where these are like the common days and the holiday. So they still have like an elevated status, but they're not um, Shabbats. And today is Shabbat Chol because if holiday has to spread over a Shabbat at some point, um, and uh, we get the special... Uh, readings and things associated with the Shabbat during Sukkot. And of course, coming at the end... The last day of Sukkot. The last day of Sukkot, but not the Shabbat. Because Sukkot is only seven-day holiday. Because Sukkot is actually a seven-day holiday. Just the like eighth day is the last day. Yeah, but before that, the seventh before that day is Hoshana Rabbah, the big Hosanna. Which is the big day. Now, throughout the holiday, the whole holiday is also associated with water. Um, because uh, this is the time when the rains start to fall in Israel. Uh, in fact, um, if you've ever been to Israel during the summertime, you know it doesn't rain at all. So this is the end of the hot, dry season and the beginning of the wet winter season. So, what? Hypothetically. Yeah, it's supposed to be. It doesn't always work out that way. Um, 
And so, like, during the stretch, you're supposed to be, they had the, the water ceremony where they bring in the water and they offer it on the altar. Um, and then the... Uh, and it, and it's, it's like Jericho. Yeah. So in the story of Jericho, they went around the city once each day. But on the seventh day, they went around the city seven times. And here, with the water libation ceremony, the high priest would go down, get the water, walk it all the way back up to the altar, and he would, they would, walk, he would walk around the altar one time. But on the Hoshana Rabbah, the big Hosanna, you would walk around it seven times. It's a big day, and of course that is also the day that Yeshua makes his comments about being the, the water of life, the Ma'im Chaim, um, and the, uh, if you believe in me, you out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. So you get this connection. This is all about Messiah. This is about um, the. It's not. It's like many layers to the messianic implications of it. The water is a connection to God, to, to Yeshua, to Messiah. Then we've also got the presence of God associated with it as well. There are some people who believe, based on the passages, um, and I see you, that this particular year, may, time of year, may have been the time when Yeshua was actually born, um, because we see the, ter- the concepts of God dwelling among men associated again with this passage. You get like, the dwelling with you. Uh, so there's like it's a very it's definitely a messianic passage and as we saw with the Haftarah if you read the Haftarah portion it's in Ezekiel it's about the end times the Haftarah earlier this week was in Zechariah again about the end times because the holiday is also all about like the end of the world it's about the culmination this is the big return to the way things are supposed to be so I got my dad and then I got Mr. Evelyn well I mean all, all of the things that we've discussed so far including the idea of clouds of glory etc are all traditional. There is uh, there is nothing in Leviticus 23 or Deuteronomy 16 to give any inkling of messianic connections. Every bit of the messianic connection in Sukkot is traditional, which at first might put some people off, but then you recognize when you read from John uh, that in fact Yeshua uses the tradition as an opportunity to show his connection even though it's not in the Torah, his connection to the festival of Sukkot and the prophecy of the Messianic age. That's right. So people that are immediately throw tradition out the window and say, only give me sola scriptura, only the scripture itself, have done themselves a great disservice because they haven't read their Bible. Absolutely. So the seventh day uh, is Hoshana Rabbah, which means great salvation Um, and there's some really unique liturgy that's only recited on Hoshana Rabbah which is the culmination of uh, of Sukkot and there's uh, one particular point in the liturgy on Hoshana Rabbah uh, which one year, I know it's not a Yom Tov so I know many of us work but one year we actually need to like make it a young toe for Bellator so we can actually get together and pray this, okay? But there's a particular portion in the, um, in the, uh, in the liturgy in the afternoon on, on Hoshana Rabbah where the Chazin um, declares the voice of the herald, heralds and proclaims, and then there's um, you know, a set of liturgy that the congregation recites. And I'm just going to read a few you know, bits and pieces um, to really uh, kind of pull out some some really cool, uh, obvious messianic um, allusions to in the liturgy. 
because again, this is the day. This is the day of the. This is the great salvation, right? Mm-hmm. So this is celebrating the fact that um, we've come through the judgment, as it were, Rosh Hashanah, Yamin Noraim, Yom Kippur, and we have entered into this Zaman Simchatena, this time of our rejoicing, and we're celebrating the fact that we have been delivered, that we've been saved, as it were, by God. Um, and so it starts out, the strength of your salvation comes, a voice, my beloved, behold, he comes. Uh, and he comes among myriad bands to stand upon the Mount of Olives. And if you read the footnotes you know, in the Maksor, I mean, it, it, it's, it references back to passages in uh, the Tanakh um, that are, you know, that are always have always understood been understood traditionally to be um, largely messianic. Um, to the blast of the shofar, he draws near. Beneath him, the mountain shall split. Again, referring to Zechariah fourteen. Um, and uh, picking up a few uh, a few verses down, uh, the seed born by him from the womb, born like a child from its mother's innards. She delivered and gave birth. Who is this? Who has heard the likes of this? The pure one has done all these, and who has seen the likes of these? Salvation. Of course, we know Yeshua. Salvation and its moment were were ordained. Can the earth deliver issue in a single day? Um, But what's interesting there is, you know, talking about the seed being born from the womb, born like a child, okay? And, you know, some say that's referring, you know, to, you know, Israel being, you know, uh, the nation, as it were, being birthed. Obviously, um, from, a, from a messianic perspective, particularly if you are of the persuasion that believes there's a fair amount of scriptural evidence that Messiah was born at Sukkot, that it's actually interesting that, you know, the, this idea of, of, of the seed being born from the womb um, who is this? Who's heard of the likes of this? That we're reciting that at the time of Sukkot. Anyway, so there's just a lot of cool connections there. But then it goes on and it says, um, skipping down a few other, um, a few more verses. A man has sprouted. Zamach is his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, his, he is David himself. Right. So clearly a reference to Messiah. Um, Arise, you who are covered with dust. Awake and sing, you who lie in the dust. That's referring to resurrection, which will happen at, at this time of the year, some future date. Um, and uh, you know, and it, it goes on and on. And it's just amazing that you know the liturgy is just so packed with, um, uh, in some cases obscure, but in other cases very, very. Uh, direct references to uh, to Messiah, and it's, it's it's really cool. Yeah, it's very cool. This, like I said, this this time of year is associated heavily with Messianic times and the end times. Yes, um, we get a number of reasons for that. One comes from the fact that at the end of Zechariah, after all of this splitting of the Mount of Olives and and, and um, God wiping out the enemies of Israel and so on and so forth, you have it specifically says that the nations will be summoned to Jerusalem to celebrate Sukkot. So we read that passage because well, this is all about Sukkot. Literally, it's right there in the passage, and so that um, that is like part one of the connection. 
The second part of the connection, and it gets a little more deep and, and interesting, and they're like playing with Hebrew, but they, they, we read the day from Ezekiel, it talks about Gog and Magog, um, and Gog is a funny Hebrew word because um, it doesn't, it, it's a name in this case, it refers to a, or a title of some sort, um, but the, the sages, because they're really cool at this stuff, they look at it and they go, well that's interesting, if you, if you just change one letter, instead of being Gog, like G-O-G, it's like almost like gag, G-A-G, and it, it's the same word for roof, which we're all talking about the roof for Sukkot, because if you study the, um, the traditions from Judaism about what makes a kosher sukkah, the most important piece is the roof. You can do almost anything with the walls as long as you've got you know, a certain number of walls and they're so high, whatever, but it's, like, it's pretty, pretty loose. But the roof absolutely has to be some sort of plant life that's no longer attached to the ground or something of that effect. And that's basically the only options you have. I mean, you can do a lot of things within that, but it's like the roof is the critical. In fact, um, if some of you may have done this, I've heard some people did, if you build your sukkah before Sukkot, that's fine as long as you don't put the roof on. Or if you take your sukkah down, but you still want to sit in it after Sukkot's over, that's, or you want to keep it up, but you don't want to sit in it after Sukkot's over, that's fine. Also, just take the roof off. It's all about or, the roof. Or just peel back a corner. Or peel back a corner of the roof or whatever. So, like, the roof is the crucial part of the sukkah. So it's, it's funny because this enemy of, of, of God has a name that's, like, very closely affiliated with the word roof. Because in the sukkah, the roof of the sukkah is non-permanent. The roof of the sukkah, what part of what makes it a non-permanent structure is you've got this, like, really flimsy roof, ultimately. And the roof is, is like, again, it goes back to the idea that God is the one who's in charge. God's the one who's providing for you. He's the shelter. He's covering you. Whereas, like, this guy, this bad guy, it's like his name is, like, more associated with, like, like a, a different type of roof, like a structural roof, like this kind of roof. And so it's like you've got the roof, and then you've got the sukkah roof. And it's like the sukkah roof looks to the eyes to be flimsy, to not very, very supportive. It lets water through and all this stuff. But it's the picture because what we see is not reality. God is the one who's covering us. God is the one who's providing for us. Whereas the enemy of Israel, when he comes to attack Israel in the, in the war of Gog and Magog, he comes with unbelievable, untold numbers of, of allies and troops. And, and from a visual perspective, he has to win. There's no alternative. He's going to absolutely obliterate the Jewish people. But again, it's not about what we see and it's not about what we think is true. It's about God and the way that he is. So we have this almost like this challenge between the provision of God versus man's attempt to provide for himself. And there's like this war going on. And this, so anyway, it, it, it all ties in with Sukkot because that's what Sukkot's about as well. It's not just about um, the idea that like we're going to go camp outside because that's fun. It's more the idea that we are trusting in God's provision for us now. We're, we've gotten through the harvest and we're rejoicing with God for having gotten us to this point and have given, blessed us with so much. I think Colby was next, if you have anything still to say. Yeah, it was just going to be about um, if Yeshua was born around this time, then, then there is, of course, evidence to, to say that. But if he was born around the first day of Sukkot, then on the eighth day, there's a, uh, the eighth day of Sukkot, there's a commandment that says, and on the eighth day you shall circumcise child. So if he was born on the first day, then he literally fulfilled the commandment of on the eighth day you will circumcise the child. That's right. And that's cool. That's really yeah. Good tie-in. Very nice. So, yes, Lori? Um, just a small thing on the Kol HaMoed. I wondered about this because if you think about the liturgy for Havdalah, actually, right? 
he just separates between holy and secular, right? Hamavdil ben Kodesh, holy, Bechol, same word. Yeah, Tanan. Tanan, yeah. So it's, that's just kind of interesting too. It's translated Sometimes it can be tra- tra- translated as secular, it can be translated as um, common. I think even what profane. profane. Yeah, that's the other. That's the stronger translation in English. Um, but I, really, I, I like the word common because it's it's not that the be- days are bad. Right. No. It's just that the days are not holy, and that's the same thing that's going on here. The days in between the Shabbats, except for today, because today is the seventh day, but the rest of them are are holy and because they're the common days of the appointed festival. So it's like the in-between days, but they're 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 common in the sense that they're not the Shabbat. Right. But they're not bad, obviously. Right. So but yeah, you're right, that is in there. And we see that God separates those. Yes, Gloria. Isn't there something about with your sukkah also you're supposed to be able to see the stars? Well like the yeah the roof is not that's what I'm saying is the roof's not complete. Like uh, in the sense that it's not um, it's not a solid roof. And so if you I mean depending on the way it's structured um, you can kind of see through it. You may not see through it very well, like because some of the some of it, it's still kosher as long as it has this, it's made of the right material, um, depending on how like tightly woven or thick it is. But there is like certain restrictions, I guess, on how that all is done. Yes, sir. Um, back to Greg's point a little bit on the on the days. The sages say that uh, as they look at the scriptures, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And uh, we've always understood that to look at the creation story and to see that man will reign for 6,000 years and that Messiah will reign for 1,000 years. Six days of labor and then one day of Shabbat. And that that Sabbath day, that seventh day, has always been associated with messianic days. And as Greg pointed out, the sages have seen that the Hoshana Rabbah or Hoshiana Rabbah, the the great salvation, um, is the seventh day. And the master used that day to bring attention to himself and the fact that he can provide living water. That's the seventh day. Shemini Yatzeret, the eighth day, is cool. It is a Sabbath. And the sages say that the eighth day always represents the world to come. And in, this, in the world to come, it will be like every day is Shabbat. And that's really what we celebrate at the end of this week. On Shemini Atzeret, which is a Shabbat, it is a Sabbath day, we should be off from work. We meet on that night to celebrate the giving of the Torah and the giving of the living Torah, and it represents the world to come, where every day is Shabbat. I just think that is so neat. It is very cool. And we've got, um, talking about the, the eighth day, uh, if you've been reading through the Maftir, uh, or the extra portions from Numbers for this particular week, uh, during Sukkot, they're reading from the, the passages about the offerings you give on Sukkot. And I'll just read a, a quick little snippet here from today. We had, on the fourth day, ten bulls, two rams, fourteen male lambs, then their first year, unblemished. That's a lot of animals. And if you watch throughout each day, it goes down. You know, it starts with a certain number of bulls. I think it's thirteen. Thirteen is that the first one, and it goes down each day a little bit, little one bull less all the way down. And the the sages point out that the the bulls, if you add them all up, it adds up to seventy, um, which is really I think it's seventy, is it right? Seventy. Yes. Yeah. Seventy. Um, which is a very interesting number, of course, and it refers to the 
number of the nations, according to your tradition. So they see Sukkot as being an international holiday. The Jews are very, very, very protective of the things that God has given them. They don't share them easily, and I think that's there's a good there's a good side to that at some level. But they actually see Judaism uh, sees Sukkot as an international holiday. This is a day when the nations were like invited. But Shemini Yitzhak, the eighth day is special. Because if you read the last, on the last day, on the eighth day, the offerings that they offer on that day are one bull, one ram, seven lambs in their first year. It's the same as all of the other holidays. Because the eighth day is like the after party. If you've ever been to a really good party, you know that the best party is usually the after party. Because the, the early part is, you know, it's a crowd of people, and there's all this stuff going on and everything, but it's like after the stuff is over, it's like, you get the closest friends or just family and you just kind of like, you just kind of live out the glow from the party. You, know, you talk it out or you have a glass of wine and just kind of relax. Or, or in, in, in the secular world, of course, usually the after party means that's when we go party a whole lot harder. The point being that however they do it, the after party is special because it's the small group. It's the intimate group. And that's the way that Judaism sees the Shemini Yetzirah, the eighth day. It's the small day. It's the day when God's going to bring in his people. If you think about Sukkot, like like the week. Sukkot is like a picture of, of all of history. The first seven days, or the first six days, are all about you know this time period we're in now. And the seventh day is like the thousand year reign, which is the day when Messiah reigns, Hoshana Rabbah, the great salvation, we get that experience. But then the eighth day is after that. And if you read Revelation, the eighth day is really the best part. It's amazing how like we're talking four verses is spent on the messianic reign for a thousand years that should be like a huge deal it's like god's reigning on earth it's massive and it's, it's extremely important but we have like an entire chapter about the new jerusalem and about what happens after it all ends because the eighth day it's about god with his people it's the after party and then, so as, as you get through this holiday, I hope that like this, I mean, like I said, I'm trying to emphasize this holiday is all about the provision of God and the fellowship of God over and over and over again. You should be thinking about and experiencing the, this, this connection, this intimacy with God. And then on the eighth day, you get to this last day. It's no longer Sukkot. You don't, you have to, you have to be out in the Sukkot anymore. But it's the day that you should see is like, it's like the after party. It's like the time when it's, when God has invited his people specifically to come spend the next day together. Amen. So, and I think Brock had a comment earlier. Do you still no. do? No. It's just stretching, stretching, stretching. Um, yeah, so it's, I mean, I, this is my favorite holiday. And in Israel, I have to say, if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, the best time to go is between um, uh, Rosh Hashanah and Sukkot. And really Yom Kippur and Sukkot. Those are the ideal times. Because this holiday... Um, is there's just nothing like it. Yom Kippur, the entire city of Jerusalem, the Jewish side, all shuts down and everybody is solemn and quiet and pretty much everybody's fasting, which is amazing. Um, and then like Sukkot, like literally there's a sukkah outside of like every single kosher restaurant in the city because you have to eat in a sukkah. So it's like they have all of these like random Sukkot all over the place. You, can, you see apartment buildings where like every balcony has a sukkah. And it's like there's just this excitement, this energy this happiness and then you get to the end and it's a huge like you know music and dance and like they're parading the torah scrolls and like it's a big deal so like it's this the the there is something special about the community and the fellowship there 
Um, and it's neat to see, it's kind of like a picture of the end. So when Brock was blessing all of these guys, that they would get to make pilgrimage. That was cool. Um, it true. Um, uh, that is a special privilege. So, yeah. Yeah, it does make you miss Israel. And also, a good thing to remember during Sukkot is to remember to know that the Sukkah is a temporary dwelling, much like this earth. Shminyat Sarah, which is the eighth day, is like the coming of the second world. Right. Yeah, exactly. It, it lasts. And it lasts forever. This world will pass away. Yes, absolutely. Very cool. Yes, Gregory. Uh, God's provision, of course, that you mentioned before, has been a big deal for me just kind of looking through what we've been reading this year, too, because I think it's cool that God not only commands joy, but commands us to kind of reflect on the fact that God is our provision when we are outside of our dwellings and in something temporary, because that's sort of back to where, you know, they're camped, and so everybody's kind of settled, and so then they're getting ready to journey, and it's on that journey that God's going to be with them and provide for them. And you know, like we know that God didn't let their shoes wear out or their clothes wear out, and they never lacked food or water. I mean, like you know, He was their provision throughout the entire time in the wilderness. Because it is also it says in Leviticus 23, 23 that like the whole point of Sukkot is basically so that the generations will know that I caused the children of Israel to dwell in booths in the wilderness in the land of Egypt. Uh, when I took them out of the land of Egypt. So it's neat, too, because, you know, the tradition is that, like, Rosh Hashanah is when your salary is kind of set for the year and, and everything's kind of understood to be final at that point. And for anyone that would be worried, Sukkot comes around, and God reminds you that he is your provision. He always will be. Amen. So it's, it's a really neat time to reflect on the provision part, for sure. Absolutely. One dad and then the other one. So um, Taylor is my... Uh, my godson available for uh, demonstrating purposes. Please, if, you'll, uh, if you look in the corner at this very handsome young man. Hey, Soraya. He's about a year or two old, and uh, he's got a really cool little uh, button-down shirt. And I, I was reading in the stages today, uh, this week, that amazingly, and I never thought about this before, we always say, oh, the shoes never wore out, and our clothes never wore out. If he was that big, when they left Egypt and let is he two or is he one? Uh, he's ten, months. Months. ten months. Nine months. Nine months. Let's call him one. <laughs> so he was one and they were standing on the plains of Jericho about to go into the land. Well, Taylor would be gone. But Sariah would be forty one years old, still wearing that same button down. <laughs> and still wearing a, that cute little pair of shorts. So probably some extra little stitches. Now that's a miracle. The clothes grew with the people. That's and where are they going to stop and buy? Oh, look. Look, a little. It's a wilderness Walmart. Yeah. No. What they came out with, God preserved. And I just wow. never saw that before. That's amazing. So now, whenever you see Soraya, you'll go... Yeah, the Incredible Hulk needed that. that was that's, no true. that's true, that's you know. true. So the big question is, does Taylor have enough faith to not buy any clothes? For <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that was a promise to no, 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 no. And my first father. Uh, thank you, no, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> no. I really did. 
As soon as he calls on somebody else, it'll come right in. Can we dive him so it comes back sooner? <laughs> but yeah, though this so this week, um, it's all about God providing, and it's about God showing his, showing Himself. And so we see that this particular Torah portion that we read this morning, um, again, goes back to that. Moses is asking to see God, and God says, "I can't show you my face, but I can show you my back." And we get this blessing. And if you if you if you celebrated Yom Kippur with us, you probably recognized this list. Adonai, Adonai, God, compassionate and gracious, and so on. It's a list of attributes, ten attributes of God, that have to do with forgiveness and compassion and mercy and grace. And um, when Moses actually picks up on this one, this is how God reveals himself. Because when when Moses says, show me your face, God actually, um, uh, the way that it's described here, you get this, um, you don't get that part of the story. Like, if you think about it, like when you read that part, you know, he, he says, I'll cover you with my hand, I'll make my glory pass, you can see my back, but you don't actually get that in real time when you read the passage. It doesn't actually go through that account. God says, I will do this, and then we get this whole big moment, Adonai descends in a cloud and stood with him there, and that's it. There's no more, like, story. There's, the narrative ends, and all God does is he talks, and he says these ten attributes, because... These ten attributes are like the elite attributes of, of God. This is like this is who God is. This is the type of, of um, uh, the way that God wants to demonstrate Himself to Moses. And it is, of course, in coming out of Yom Kippur and in repentance and in, and in our sin that God reveals these merciful attributes. Um, and then ultimately, uh, Moses keys in on that. He uses them again later. He brings them up to God, or he throws some of them back out to God, saying, "You know, remember these." So when we get to Yom Kippur, we pray that over and over again. It's because, we, as we say, as, as you taught Moses, you know, we're going to say these attributes. So that, that's also really cool. We get a chance to see God and who he is um, a bit more deeply here in this passage. And then also Sukkot's doing the same thing. We're seeing God, who he is as our provider. We're seeing God, who he is as the one who takes care of us. I mean, you mentioned earlier, it's the time of our joy. And that, like multiple Jewish sources say, this is the weirdest I see both of you. The weirdest thing of all to have this to be the time of our joy when we're outside and like today it's hot it's not comfortable to sit in the sukkah or you go out there like you probably hopefully it won't be but if it ends up being later this week and it's raining and it's like this is in fact if it's too bad you don't even have to stay out there because even you know it's like understood that that's not part of the goal of this holiday to be miserable but the point is it's like if you think about it logically it doesn't make sense to, to spend the time of our joy outside it's not like the most comfortable, but that's because as, we, as we're reading through the book of Kohelet or Ecclesiastes, the point of life is not the things that make us comfortable. It's not the things that make, a, make the normal secular person joyful. It's, the, it's this higher level, this connection and communion with God, and, um, and that's what we're getting on Sukkot as well. We're connecting with God, we're spending time with God, we're thinking about God, and we're, we're basically putting our, our lives literally, physically, in his hands outside as we celebrate, and we're going to rejoice in him because he transcends our circumstances. I think I had Gregory first, and they'll come bring mm-hmm. oh. Oh. as well. Oh, and Lori. Okay, so Gregory, we'll work around the room cool. here. But just, just real quick, as you're there in, in Exodus 34, like um, right above that, where it talks about like the second tablets, I thought that was kind of cool since we'll be restarting the portion cycle on Simchat Torah. And like it just redoes everything, you know, and it's kind of like an allusion to that when you, he has to carve out the second half, says the first one. So you're just going back through it, 
And that, of course, is neat too, because this is a time of joy while we're dwelling in Sukkot, but then it's right after that that we dwell, that, that we, they're joyful in the Torah, just like oh, right. for the children of Egypt, in Egypt, or coming out of Egypt, they were joyful with God in the wilderness, and then they received the Torah, so it's like a, kind of a repeat of that as well. For yeah, us. and you're right, absolutely, the end of the Sukkot, or the end of Shemini Atzeret, um, is known as, well, Sim- Simcha Torah, we're going to uh, mark it. And yeah, it's rejoicing in the Torah because that's like you know, that's where we get the most joy. So, and I think we're next up to you. Now, brother Lord. So, um, I've been trying to reflect on, on God's provision since I mean, that's the that's the deal, right? God, God's provision, and um, it's easy for me to get my paycheck every week. We get paid every Friday, and um, you pay yourself for I, I do, yes. Um, the, the accounting team does. That, He's yeah. delegated people to pay him with his money. That's right. Well, that's actually how it is. Um, but uh, this is a time of year where we, we reflect, uh, as some of the men have said, that you know, in Rosh Hashanah, God, according to the sages, has predetermined how much money you'll make in the year. And this past Tuesday night, Taylor was leading a discussion for us uh, on on several words. Uh, I hope that uh, as soon as uh, as soon as the slacker that's supposed to get those audio things gets them up there, you'll all listen <laughs> to that. Um, but the one on tzedakah, or the giving of charity, was, uh, I mean, just, it just really hit me hard that, that uh, I think as, as Peter was helping us to understand that we think of charity as, as giving money most of the time to people who don't deserve it. Just, they don't deserve it. They didn't work for it. And, and we're giving them what we work for. And the concept of tzedakah is exactly the opposite. It's one of justice. And it comes from the word for justice or righteousness. And it's that God has determined that he will provide, he will bring provision for some of those that he has chosen to be less fortunate. And he is going to use us to do it. And that really hit me hard. Because I don't look at the guy with the sign and say, I wonder what God's prompting me to provide for this. I don't I never think that way. I think the guy is a slacker and he needs to do a job. Um, but that's a... Well, that may also be that's true. A, that, that may be true, but that's a different different story. But um, in, a, in a week where we reflect on and we physically practice God's provision, and we reflect on it throughout the week. Um, for me, at least, I don't know about you, the rest of you, but I, I stop and think about his monetary provision for me, my family, and our ability to, um, to help the community to come together and meet and so forth. And now I'm, I'm thinking about how he uses me and everyone else in this community to provide for other people. And he chooses to use me for that provision. I think that's amazing. And then, as, as uh, Lori has taught me over the years, to reflect on not only provision of God in, in a general sense, but the fact that he provided Messiah Yeshua. That's, I mean, if that, doesn't, if that doesn't bless your blesser, your blesser's busted. Right? I mean, God has provided his Messiah. And 
We were lost. We were without hope. We were far off. I mean, aren't we almost all, except some that are waiting in the DNA test, aren't we all Gentiles, right? I mean, so we were far off. We were totally without any hope. And God provided for us that at least this year, especially when I'm standing in a soup. Absolutely. Um, going back to the three Torah reading for today, um, I read something interesting from First Kings Zion actually. It reminded me of the Taylor taught the class on a while ago about Hashem's like the atonement aspect mm. and, and Moses' intercession, all that. Um, but this, if you recall the story here, this is after the Golden Calf incident, and so after the Golden Calf, God is pretty angry at Israel. Here's another statement. Yeah. Wants to wipe them out from the nation. Moses intercedes and says, Oh, please remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and Hashem relents from destroying them. But still, there's not a relationship there yet, really, with God and the people. Because it says here, in English, you can't really tell, but in Hebrew, it makes more sense. It says, my, God says, My own prince will go along with you and provide you rest. Now, in Hebrew, though, that's singular. He's speaking exclusively to Moses there. Ah. So That's because he was going to make Jews instead of Jews. Uh, <laughs> but it's cool. And Moses doesn't, he doesn't accept that. He says, that's not, that's not good. If you read the next verse here, he says, Moses said to him, if your presence does not go along, do not bring us onward from here. How then will they know that I found favor in your eyes, I and your people? Like, he's talking about, because he's such a good, like, compassionate intercessor for the people. Like, it's not enough to just give me favor. Um, Unless you accompany us and thereby distinguish me and your people. Um, that's just really cool because then Hashem said to Moses, I will do this thing which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my eyes, and I have distinguished you with high, re- high repute. So because of the basis of the merit of Moses, God pardons the whole people. And so the, the same way as the sun. Exactly. Because Moses is the parallel. Absolutely. So just in the same way that Moses... And this, the first reads pointed out something really neat, like grace in English. Well, like a lot of churches today is translated like unmerited favor, mm-hmm. but they're saying that's wrong. It's merited favor. Like God, um, Moses else had. Is yeah, well, Moses had merit here before God, and basis that mm-hmm. merit was upon mm-hmm. the people. So in that same way, Yeshua has merit with God, and because of that merit, He pardons the people. Mm-hmm. In that particular passage, you get this this weird twist because in that one he says um, he's talking about if I have found if I have found grace in your sight, teach me your ways so that I may find grace in your sight. And it's like this this weird like circle. Like well, I don't get that. I thought grace is not merited, so what does it really matter? Like how can you get more? Um, but uh, my dad's pointed this out. Is it's like you've got this this cycle where God gives grace. And then he, that grace, his intention is to lead you to want to know his ways and to obey him so that, in effect, you like get to tap into more grace. It's like there's this cycle of grace there where God is blessing you, you grow, you're more obedient, you're, more, you're meriting more favor, and so on and so forth. And it's like this ever-moving up pattern. That's the, that's the goal. That's the idea. Um, one of the things with this particular portion, um, as we get further on into it towards the end, he, he, he transitions. God basically summarizes practically the entire Torah 
in the last half of our portion here. He goes through all the holidays. He goes through a lot of the major commandments. He focuses on, on avoiding idolatry and so on and so forth. Um, and he keys in on, um, he starts with this three. Because as my father-in-law loves to point out, how many holidays does God have? Well, let's, let's count. How many do we have? Well, we have, we have seven. But then we also have three. And and we have eight, and we have yeah, nine, and there's and there's a couple more that we throw in just just because, and you know so, but the yeah the three major ones are the shloshim um, regalim, literally the three, oh, I guess pilgrimage, but the three feet basically is how you would translate that um, because you get there on your feet at least that's what they used to do, and the holidays are big because God requires Israel to show up there. In, in the place where his presence dwells for the, for the holiday. And, of course, I mean, you know, those of us who are men can really, can really I think, identify with what a big deal that is. You don't just, like, I mean, we talk about, you know, time to take vacation and even how hard it is sometimes to get the Shabbats off from work, like now, and so on and so forth. And some people, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy. And, and then you've got, like, like this, and it's like, okay, so I don't just need you to take the day off. I kind of need you to, to travel like halfway across the country it's like imagine if god's like okay so it's it's sukkot uh, you can, or, uh, or pesach let's just pick pesach for example that's the first one here so pesach so the first night um you need to be in 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 dallas so all of you need to get to dallas for the first night after that you can do whatever you want but you have to be in dallas for the first night it's like okay well um how many days do we need to take off to like get there and get back and like, this is not, I'm going to arrange for where I'm living and staying while I'm there. And, like, it's a huge ordeal. This is a really big deal. Um, and that's why, when God points this out, um, he takes it up an extra notch in this portion because he, he's, he notes that um, no man will covet your land, this is verse 24, when you grow up to appear before Adonai your God three times a year. Because you have to remember, it's not just, he's not just calling the businessmen to come to Jerusalem. He's calling all of the men. Now, if you think about it, in our country we have a professional army, so it's a little bit different. And the army we don't really see, you don't really sense, and you know they're kind of there, but you don't really recognize it. But in Israel, in the yes, some people you might see more more, more commonly. But in Israel, um, like especially in this time period, you don't have like fighter jets that occasionally are flying over. You've got you've got troops stationed at key points around the borders of the country because they're trying to keep people out, right? So it's like I want you to take all of your soldiers and put them in the very center of the country. I mean, let's just be honest. This, this is like the inverse of the, um, what, like the, the, the giant wooden horse at Troy, you know? It's like you put all the soldiers in the horse, get it inside. Now it's like we get all the soldiers in the horse and put it outside of the building. It's like, okay, we're going to put them all in the same location on the very center of the country so all the borders are exposed. Um, logically, this is the stupidest defensement uh, approach you can possibly do. But again, it doesn't matter, because who's in charge? God's in charge. So this goes back to something we talked about earlier, talking about provision of God, and how it defies human logic. Because really, if we believe that God provides everything for us all the time, then it doesn't matter, in a sense, what we do, as long as we're pleasing to Him. So in this case, He says, everybody come to Jerusalem, and then I will protect the borders. I will keep it safe. Because really, it's him anyway. It's all about him. And that's what we see again with, we see in Zechariah. We see in Ezekiel. Again, it's like the end of time. It's going to be outnumbered 10 to 1, 1,000 to 1, whatever the case may be. And it's like the enemy logically will win. And God wins anyway. 
And that's the way that the, the holiday works, and that's the way that this also functions. According to tradition, Sukkot is even a step up, because tradition holds that during Sukkot, you're supposed to stay in Jerusalem for the entire holiday. In, uh, with Pesach, you get, you get like a, a, a deal. You only have to be there for the first, the first day, and then you can go home after that. And that's actually kind of what we see, um, it seems to see, with Yeshua when he comes up to, to Jerusalem with his parents, and he gets left behind at the temple. They seem to spend the holiday there, and then they come home. Um, I guess depending on what, which day they're leaving, but I mean, um, you don't have to stay for the whole thing. But with Sukkot, it's like encouraged to stay for the whole thing. And God is so good because another element to this that's also kind of cool is that we don't live in an agrarian society, so we don't see it as much. But um, in this society, this is also the festival of the the ingathering. You see that comment in this passage because this is when all of the um, like the major harvest takes place. We're done. You know, we've gathered in the food. We've at the end of the year. We don't. All the planting is finished for now, and you can basically just sort of relax, in a sense, and rejoice in what God has provided you with. And so that's cool here because that's the holiday that God calls them all up for all seven days. Like during Pesach, it's like, well, we're still trying to get like the first harvest of the spring up and going, and you know, we've got these things going on, and I really need to get back home to my farm. And God's like, okay, I just need one day. But then on the, the big the big holiday at the end of the year when you have this like break, you don't have to worry about the farm anymore at home. God God asks for, for all eight. Now that's kinda neat. Again, God even keeping our needs um, in perspective, not that he needs to, but he does anyway, um, just to kind of visualize, see um, the good things that he's doing. So um, yeah, that was that summarizes most of the portion. We're kind of to the very, very end here. Um, of our little section, well, I think. Um, Joshua, while you're looking at that, the uh, it was Hillel said that you had to stay for all seven days of the uh, festival of unleavened bread. Oh, okay. Shemai is the one who said you could leave early. Oh, okay. And that was the prevailing halakha back then, of course. And uh, of course, the road to Emmaus, where the Lord appears, that would never have happened unless Shemai's <laughs> ruling was coming to pass, you know, and he's like, well, why, why, why are you guys leaving? What are, you, what are you doing? And he explains himself. Um, but, of course, we know now that Hillel has won out even yeah. after the fact. Well, I, honestly, that was a really short portion, so I'm kind of, I'm doing pretty good here. If someone else has other comments, they want to run. Yes, Colby. Can somebody go over how Yeshua waits uh, like, to the water and stuff? Do what? How he waded into the water? No, no, Yeshua relating relates to like water, Sukkot tradition. Oh, yeah. Good Lord. Can I know what name is Dropping for the minus of the libations and all that? Amen. I was going to ask directly, but I want to Well, okay, so back, I was, as you guys were saying, I was just turning to um, the Mishnah. Suk, you know, Mishnah Sukkah, which is in the uh, Maksimur, for those of you who had it. And there's a description starting in chapter 5. Actually, it probably starts, I think, the end of chapter uh, 4, where it starts to describe the, um, the last day of where they, whatever, they would do these um, libations, these, make these offerings every day that we read in the Torah. Um, and each offering included libations. Um, and um, it's interesting because the every, everywhere in the Torah when we 
have a description of making an offering. Uh, if there's a libation that's described, it is only ever describing a wine libation. And we never actually have anywhere in the written Torah of a description of uh, having a water libation. But yet, during the festival of Sukkot, we have, um, and, and it was uh, kind of a key um, element of the feast of the temple services during the week of Sukkot, was the uh, water libations, particularly on Hoshana Rabbah, there was a very elaborate ceremony um, involving a water libation offering in the temple. Um, and but where do we where do we get that? Because it's, there's nowhere ever does it say in the scripture that we are supposed to use a water libation. It only ever specifies a wine libation. So how did how did they know they're supposed to be doing a water libation? Which apparently Yeshua, um, you know, uh, didn't have a problem with because he was there in the temple, John chapter um, seven. Um, on that day when they were pouring and when they were performing this particular ceremony, right? That's when he stands up in the temple and he declares, I am the living water and whoever comes unto me, you know, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. So he makes that statement standing in the temple on Hushan Rabbah, the last day of Sukkot, while they're in the middle of this particular ceremony that only happens at this time of the year. But the question is, how did, we, how did they know they were supposed to have a water libation? Because there's nowhere in the, in the written Torah that says that. However, in um, Numbers 29, which is you know, where part of our reading comes from, when you get to the description of the offerings of uh, Sukkot, it says, you know, on the first day you'll offer this many lambs and this many you know, male sheep and this and that and that and their libations. And then on the next day, you offer this many bowls and this many rams and this and that and their libations. And it goes on and describes the offerings for every day of the festival. However, when you look at the Hebrew, um, there's a couple of um, instances where the wording ends up getting changed in the Hebrew, um, where, the, um, uh, where there's these nuances in the Hebrew. And you're only going to know it if you're reading the Hebrew. You're only going to have an opportunity to even pick up on it if you're studying the Hebrew. If you're reading the English, you know, you'll never see it. But when you look at these three instances of where the Hebrew is um, slightly altered, it's basically the words in each case are have an extra letter added to them compared to the same word in, in the other instances where it's used. And the extra, the three extra letters are mem, yud, mem, which spell mine, water. So it is from here that they connected that, oh, because of this nuance in the Hebrew text of the scripture that spells mine, these extra three letters that spell mine, ah, God is telling us we, we have to offer a Water libation, on you know, with these off with these offerings, rather than a wine libation. Well, it's actually with a wine. You is still have to offer both, right? And in fact, we have in um, in the Mishnah, chapter four, um, paragraph nine. How is the water libation done? The Mishnah asks. 
He filled a golden flagon, flagon holding three lugim, he being the priest, from the shloach. Shloach is the pool of shloach, which was when you, um, if you're on the temple mount, in the temple, you would, they would go out the southern end, out the water gate, it's called the water gate, and they'd go down the southern end of the temple mount, down at the bottom of Ir David, uh, for those of you who are familiar with um, City of David. City of David and Jerusalem. And uh, there's an underground spring called the Gihon Spring that feeds um, this uh, pool called the, uh, the Pool of Shloach, or in English it's the Pool of Siloam. Right? You've probably heard that. You know? and, and there's some interesting things that we see recorded in the Apostolic Scriptures that happen at the Pool of Siloam. Okay? But they would go out the uh, water gate of the courtyard down the southern slope down to the bottom of the hill to this natural um, spring fed pool and they would draw water. So he would take the golden flagon and he'd get three lugim from the Shiloh. When they reached the water gate, they sounded a takiyah, a teruah, and a takiyah. So the, we, have shof, we have shofarim here. He went up the ramp, turned to the left. There were two bowls there. Rabbi Yehuda says they were of plaster, but their surfaces were darkened from wine. Each had a hole like a thin nostril, one wider and the other narrower, so that both would drain out at the same time. The western one was for water, the eastern one was for wine. If he poured the flagon of water into the bowl for wine, or the flagon of wine into the bowl for water, he fulfilled the obligation. Rabbi Yehuda says he would pour with one log all eight days. To the poor, they would say, raise your hand. For once someone poured it over his feet, and all the people pelted him with their with their etrogim. That person was a Sadducee, by the way. Just as, just as it is performed on a weekday, so it is performed on the Sabbath, except that he would fill an unconsecrated golden barrel on the eve of the Sabbath from the Shiloh and place it in a chamber. If they were spilled or uncovered, he would refill it from the from the labor. For uncovered wine and water are unfit on the altar. The flute is played five or six days. This flute, uh, this is the flute of Beit Hashoeva, which overrides neither Sabbath nor festival. They said, whoever did not see the rejoicing of the Beit Hashoeva, this is uh, the this is uh, Beit Hashoeva is the, the 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 name for the this particular ceremony. Uh, never saw rejoicing in his lifetime. So in other words, there's this description that says. If you weren't in the temple for Beit Hashoeva, for the uh, water libation ceremony, if you weren't there to experience it, then you have never experienced joy. You, you don't know what partying is. In, in your entire life, right? So that's, that's a really, really strong statement. Um, it, and it, go, it goes on, I won't read all of it, but what, essentially what would happen is he would, they would go down and take, um, they would draw water in this golden flagon from the pool of Shloach, which was also known as the waters of salvation, from which Isaiah, when he says, you shall draw forth waters from the springs of salvation, from the springs of Yeshua, he's making a reference, as Isaiah chapter 12, he's making a reference to this particular ceremony and the pool of Shloach. They would draw the waters of salvation, they would, they would parade back up the hill to the temple, Dancing, singing, flutes playing—you know—all of this. Chauffeur. 
he would go back into the the priest would go back through the water gate into the into the temple, go up the ramp of the altar, turn left, right, and now he's got he uh, I think it was actually two priests. One would come in with a flagon of wine, the other had the flagon of water from the cool shlach. They would go up, and they had these two bowls, as we read. They would raise up the flagon so that you know because the court the temple's packed, right? It's, you know, standing room only. They'd raise up the flagon so everybody could see, and they would pour out the water and the wine into these bowls that had holes in them and it would drain and, and then um, drain through and um, pour out on the ground underneath the altar so we have water and wine being poured out together okay um, on this day of the great salvation um, and it's this time of great joy so I mean the water and the wine mixing together um, there's obvious connections there, right? You only see that one other time in the Bible, where there's water and something that looks like wine or reddish mixing together. There's only one other time, right? And it's on the cross, exactly. When the Master gets, so you have all of these symbols that are associated with the great salvation, and it's all connected to the salvation Hashem provides. Uh, through Messiah, Amen. Uh, so it's really, it's really cool. But the fact that we even knew that we had to pour out water uh, on the altar uh, is because of the nuance in the Hebrew. Otherwise, we wouldn't even know that we needed to do that. Right, and that's the thing is you say that throughout the um, throughout the uh, the sages' commentary on the holidays and how, okay, how do we know how to do this? Where do they get all these rules for how the sukkah is supposed to be built? Um, if you have a lulav, the little uh, the branches and the, the etrog, the fruit, um, how do we know which branches? How do we know what fruit? How do we know any of these things? Um, and and it's it's based off of stuff like that. They're digging into the scriptures. They're looking for the this letter is missing. This letter is here when it's not supposed to be. This letter is half as big as it is over here. You know, um, this word is this word, but it it also can mean this, and so on and so forth. And and it's really. Um, it's it's digging into the scriptures. It's taking them really seriously, and I hope that like, well, obviously we have. Um, I see a whole bunch of hands here. Um, we we don't. I. We're still digging into try to understand some of the things that the sages have taught us, and I think we're still learning. But at the same time, I hope that you that no one would be dismissive of their commentary because it really is about um, trying to understand the scriptures. And generally speaking. I mean, I don't know if it's 100%, but from my experience, it pretty much is. They're using the scriptures to comment on the scriptures. They're digging in. They're looking for the nuance. They're looking for the, the little pieces of things to figure out what God is trying to say through or is saying through the scriptures, um, which I think is really neat. It's different from just like, well, me and Shlomo got together and talked, and we think you should do it this way. I mean, that's not that's not the way that it's that it's done. So I got you, and then you, and then Ben, you have your hand right? Okay, all right. So real quick, um, two things. One would be, you know, if you if you want to and feel compelled to dismiss the traditions and, and to dismiss the interpretations of the sages or the rabbis, um, then, then really you have to question, well, what, what are you doing? Is, is it okay if, if you determine what's right and wrong by, by reading it? Well, then why couldn't they do that? You know, kind of thing. Anyway, um, just to, to Greg's point uh, on uh, in great... Uh, outstanding, by the way, uh, description. But for those of you who can't picture the temple in your head and can't picture the altar, 
when I think altar, I think of the Methodist church with that thing, you know, there's like a table up there, right? With the, you know, a cool curtain thing, uh, runner on it. That Maybe you think that. The, the altar there was up at the top, and it was a double ramp thing. So I want you to picture an altar that's up here where these lights are, one story up, and to get there was a double ramp. So you went up a ramp that was half as high as that, about where your heads are sitting on the couch, and then the ramp turned around and it came back the same way to get up that high. That's what it was. And that's where they were supposed to wear linen breeches and whatnot, so that, you know, you, since they're up a story and they're standing up there, you couldn't look up their kilt, you know, in toga or whatever it was, you know. So they had, they had linen breeches up, but that's what it was. They'd go up there, and that's where they were pouring, but there was a grate up there where they burned that stuff the, the sacrifices all day long. They do the, the lamb at 9 a.m. That happens to be when the master was put on the cross. And then they would do all the other offerings throughout the day that anybody brought. Colby shows up, my wife's home, this is just a Thanksgiving offering, my wife is beautiful. Here, okay, great. So, you know, everybody's gonna eat that. He's got all his friends there that shoot a pool, they have a great time, they eat all that food. And, and a piece of it is put on top of that nine o'clock lamb. Then Taylor shows up and he's just so grateful He's got a peace offering, so the thigh gets taken and given to the Cohen, and then his lamb is put on top of there. And, and so on and so on. All day long, they just sandwich them on top, and then at 3 o'clock, the afternoon or minka sacrifice was put on top of that. And that was made to burn all night long. But it was on top of a grate. And anything that you poured on it, like a wine libation, or a wine and a water libation, would flow all the way through and hit the ground. So it was double, double rest to get up. If you can't visualize what the temple looks like, come to our sukkah party tomorrow because my dad got us this giant like wall hanging in our sukkah and you can see at least one artist's interpretation of what the, 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 it was like. Colby. No, I'm just letting him. Oh, Ben. Um, uh, referring to my dad's um, with the water and the wine, what about um, in the planks when he turned the water into the plank? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. That's right. right. That's right. And Joseph said that there's only one other time that that like happened. He's referring to that. Yeah, I'm referring to where they were. You're right. They were mixed. One turned into the other. But where they were mixed together was when they stuck the spear into uh, the master's side. And water flowed out mixed with blood. His, so it would his. look like that. But you're right. That's good. That's good. Yeah. 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 The Upham legacy. <laughs> Starting the next generation. It's actually kind of cool that it's the book of John where it talks about that, yeah. too. Because the book of John also mentions Hanukkah. The book of John is also like probably one of the more Jewish of all the Gospels in terms of its traditional references. How odd that the church would choose to teach that first to new Christians, thinking that well, it's, it's the most Gentile one. I know. That's, that's well, just cool that that and it's, particular reference is... And it's funny because John is traditionally seen as one of the most anti-Semitic Gospels because right. of its constant reference to the Jews. Like somehow they were all the Jews. When in reality, it's a geographic reference... You got the, the Judeans, the Jews, who live in the south, Judea, 
versus the Galileans who were living way up in the north. You know, we got the north-south thing. You know, you guys are Yankees and we're Hicks and whatever. So the Hellenists coming in from down south that didn't speak Hebrew. Right. So you've got this. I mean, I agree with Greg. I mean, having read through John. Um, and looked at it from a more of a messianic perspective, and um, there's some cool commentary for First Versus Zion, at least the old stuff. I don't think the stuff is like the old stuff was really good on that. Somebody's got a really and, uh, good study on that. Um, that's pretty uh, talking about he's the got later first, one. Huh? He's got the first same John. guy, right? First John. Yeah. Well, I'm same thinking. Uh, well, yeah, the later one, but the the Gospel of John though, heavily focused on the Jewish. Uh, traditions, teachings, and it's all about comparing Yeshua with Moses. And you see that over and over and over again. The incident where they bring the woman caught in adultery to Yeshua happens on Shemini and Sarah. Oh, yeah. Same kind of thing. Huh? I didn't know that, really. Yeah, because John chapter 7 is Hoshana Rabbah. Right, right, right. And they're still at the temple the next day. And then it says he it, then it says he went uh, at the end of Hashanah Rabbah yeah. after he has that kind of. Did you go to Bethany? It's, you know, he goes to the Mount of Olives, and then it says the next, the day, next day he went back to the temple, <sighs> and they bring the um, the woman caught in adultery to him. Huh. Shimon <laughs> Well, cool. Very cool. So another cool thing about like regarding hospitality, because you know we like traditionally you're supposed to have lots of guests and stuff in your sukkah, and I just think it's really cool this year how there's pretty much every single day that somebody is hosting somebody else, and it's neat that it's a it's a cool opportunity to see like you know God is the one that provided shelter for us, like mm-hmm. we have we all have homes and everything, and it's. Since God provided that for us, we remember on Sukkot that like we we want to be hospitable to guests and everything, and so just thanking everybody for their hospitality this year has been absolutely. So far. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. yeah. Absolutely. I mean, all right. Well, um, so the lessons you gotta remember: God's provision, God's presence. Keep it in the mind, Morgan. Um. I was just thinking about what we said at the beginning about um, the days of Sukkot and then um, Shemini or like the 6,000 years in the world and then we have like the Messianic um, kingdom and then the world to come. And um, and I've heard the, the perspective that like the world, this world is so bad, like we're kind of stuck here now but we can't wait to leave, like mm. that kind of approach. And, um, and I was just thinking like, we don't hate the days of Sukkot. Like, they're, you know, we're, this is such a joyful time, and we, even though we know that we're kind of building up to a greater joy or something bigger coming, like, we still enjoy these days we have in Sukkot. And both um, this world and the days of Sukkot give us opportunities for obedience, I mm. think, to obey God. And, um, and so the way that we delight in the, like, we decorate our Sukkot to make them beautiful, we don't just, but that's like one of the special parts mm-hmm, of it is mm-hmm. the decoration. And I think in the same way, we can beautify our lives with um, the observance of the Mitzvot and our obedience to God and delight in where he has put us right now in this place. Absolutely, absolutely, very good. And yeah, we and we think about like Sukkot's all about like the food too, right? Like we're going to have like food and wine. And that's one of the things that, that, Shl- that Solomon, Shlomo, keys in on in Ecclesiastes too. He's saying that like, so uh, what, what have I found to have been good in all of my experience in life? It's that a guy should work, and then that he should enjoy the fruits of his labor. And that refers to food and wine. And we think, 
our my our my in laws for their you know generous sharing of their wine every, every Jewish holiday. Every is about food. holiday. Yes, it's a great thing. We love it. We love it. Um, looks like you're busy. Dad, would you would you close us out in prayer? Would you close us out in prayer? Father, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God and you have uh, implanted into this world in this time and in this season, in the place of our birth and the family to which we were born. We thank you that you are good and that you have provided us an opportunity to seek you. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and that we have found you. We thank you that you reveal yourself in these festivals. We thank you for Sukkot and all that you have uh, revealed in it about our master. Uh, we pray this in the name of Amen. Amen.